Come on. Wasn't that great this week? Snow Hill? Snow Hill? I'm getting a lot of no looks. I'm doing the Advent box. You do it after? So the week after. So, like the second Advent. Like, like hobbits. Okay, I want to get a cup of coffee and talk about that painting because it is super good this past week. <clears throat> um, so, okay. I might have said a couple weeks back um, that here we go, another Christmas. Or Christmas has become for you as we move towards Christmas with Advent. Um, and I kind of opened and, and just said, this is 48 years of Christmas. And let's see, there's not new in the story, but the story still changes us. And it's interesting, I don't know how your world works. For me, I always go into um, chapters or seasons, I don't know the right word there, but with just this kind of like, well, let's see what's going to happen. And uh, maybe you know that about me, you've been around me long enough. I don't really have this grand master plan for very much at all in my life. It's kind of a show up and let's see what happens. And so uh, moving into Christmas, it's that way too. I don't know, your house, maybe you've got a book, a box of books that around Christmas you open the box and bring them up. And there's old friends in there. And as you're reading through them, you read things that you, you've read maybe decades ago and it's changed who you are or it still impacts you and you still think about it. We have that. We have that in our house. Um, but there's also with each new uh, coming to the Christmas, Christmas, um, like, I wonder what else is, what, what's there? And so anyway, this year, uh, Rachel, we had, I think, lunch, and she was like, these, I read a couple books last year through the Advent season, and they were amazing. And so picked up a couple of them. This is one of them. It's by Scott Erickson. It's called Honest Advent. Um, and so here's the thing this morning. Um, I know you came expecting three points, three applications, a poem, a prayer, and then we'd be done. Like every other Sunday, right? Um, but this week, if we had the budget and if he was available, I would have actually flown Scott in. Because as I was reading, especially this week, as I was reading, I found myself going, the stuff you wrote for the chapters for this week and, and I'm actually, I'm not even going to finish the book this season because I'm so slowly soaking through it. Um, I was like, this, this is speaking to me. And in doing that for me, I thought maybe we'll spill that out this morning. And so um, unlike other Sundays, it's going to be pretty quote heavy. Okay, so if you're going to zone or whatever, go grab more coffee. There's plenty of coffee there. It's ready. It's available. Um, get a granola bar. Get some sugar in you, and, and we'll see. But um, as much as I can this morning, not, I'm not going to try and do commentary on the stuff he wrote. Um, I do have some thoughts. But I, I want to bring in another voice this morning. Is that okay? I don't say that apologetically. This is something that's moved me this week, and so I want to share. So... Um, okay, so let's see. And good morning, got that. Okay, got that. All right, got that. Okay, here we go. So in one of the chapters, Erickson begins, he says this. I don't know how God's sovereignty works. I really don't. I don't know what's free will and what's predetermined and how that all plays out. I don't even know if these topics are the right ways of categorizing this topic. I just know that the divine is really, 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 really detailed in his working with us. And anytime I'm awakened to this intentionality, I'm filled with wonder. So sovereignty is, um, it comes up from time to time in, out in the wild, uh, we talk about kings and queens as being sovereign. If you watch The Crown or captured it all by uh, any of the events in, in the UK lately, there's, there's discussion of sovereignty. Sovereign is one of those words that we use very rarely. We kind of know what it means. It gets used in church world, and we kind of know what it means. 
Sovereignty is an authority or it's supreme power that has no source of authority beyond it. It is authority that is inherent from who or... um, John Piper says it this way, God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. God's sovereignty is his right and power to do all that he decides to do. I like that idea, and it's helpful. So Erickson goes on, he says, this feeling of wonder happened to me a few years ago at Home Depot. Ever have God just bump into you in the random spot? So he said, I had been unemployed for months and was in conversation with the church that I had worked at years earlier about coming back on staff. He says, the conversations with the leadership were very honest and emotional since there had been some hurt feelings on both sides at my earlier departure. It wasn't the opportunity I had expected, but I was desperate for some security since we were actually on food stamps and my wife and I were scraping by as we tried to support our young family. He says, I received a call a few weeks after those initial conversations telling me that the leadership of the church had actually decided to pass on the offer for me to come back. And I was devastated. He said, I hit the lowest moment I've ever had in my life, and I didn't know what to do next. I had no plans or no options, and I remember whispering in the dark one night, God, have you led me to this? I don't know what to do anymore. Can you relate? So maybe not the exact same scenario. Maybe not you were quit or let go of a church like Scott was. I can relate, actually, to this. Here we are, because I can relate to this. But anyway, um, maybe not the same, but maybe it was a relationship that you walked away from because it was toxic or not God-honoring. And it was the right decision at, at that time, but as time goes on from there, you feel the pain of loneliness, and it Actually, in hindsight, doesn't look so bad anymore. Sarah Groves has this song, Painting Pictures of Egypt. This idea of the further away we get from a thing that we are adamant about when we make the decision, the easier it is to see it differently. It's what we saw in the book of Jonah. It's easy to repent of our repentance, right? And so, but not only, not, not just that, not the, those things. It, it could be you quit a job or, or a job change or, um, Something we've all been there. We could pass the mic this morning if we were being really raw. And can you relate? And yeah, here's the scenario. I want to just speak into that this morning. Not like take us to this low point, but it's so easy around Christmas time with all the Hallmark movies and everything else going on and to just be inundated with the fluffy snow saccharine. I don't even like saying Christmas time because my brain just then goes into one of those types of things. But see, it's it's easy to think, especially now, well, I gotta work up these emotions or I gotta whatever. But we've all been there. God, have you led me to this point and I don't know what to do? And really the question in this is in it's it's this bigger question of who cares? Who cares? And that's a thing you can toss out at someone as a cut, right? They're telling you something, you've had enough of it, you're like, who cares, right? Isn't that a lovely thing to have someone throw at you? But with just a little bit different emphasis, who cares? Who cares? See, and it's easy then it, in the middle of the night, but at random points in our day too, to have these moments where you are processing through something or you are working through something and that that nagging doubt voice comes in. And it's not that the doubt's bad, but it's, it's this message of who cares, which really at its core is a question of God, do you care? God, do you care? So... Um, Sorry, I'm looking at these quotes and, okay, we'll go back. So Erickson goes on, he says, three days later, I was searching for wood screws at Home Depot. And I ran into my friend Cameron, 
whom I knew from previous creative projects around town. He said, we chit-chatted for a few minutes, and then he asked me how my week had been. And Eric decided to be, or Scott decided to be honest. He said, I responded honestly, telling him that it had been the lowest, one of the lowest weeks of my life. And Cameron paused for a moment and then with kind eyes responded that he believed God wanted to share two things with me. Now, this is where I track with Scott as an author. He says, I'll let you know that I'm up for all the freaky weirdness of life. But when religious people claim to be the mouthpiece of the Almighty, I take it with a grain of salt. (laughs) Tell me what you've got, Scott. (laughs) He says, not that I don't think it happens. So don't hear that. And don't hear that when I say that either. It's not that you don't think that it happens. He says, I just think that there can be a lot of projections as well. Then Cameron told me something that changed my life. He said that God wanted me to know that he saw where I was at and knew it was a completely painful place to be. And God was also, or God also wanted me to know that I had been obedient in doing all the work of repairing past relationships, even though I wasn't going to work there moving forward. What a thing. What a thing. He says, the intimacy of these words broke me and tears burst forth. Remember, they're in Home Depot, right there, and they hugged in the nuts and bolts aisle. And although what he had shared lacked any strategic plan for moving forward, right? He says, it was exactly what I needed to hear. I thought what I needed to hear was the next steps for provision. And what I really needed to hear was that I had been seen and known by providence the whole time. That I had been seen and known by providence the whole time. Now, I know this is week four of Advent. We're in the theme of love. We did John 3.16, so we've covered it. But we're also going to hover over this, hopefully without being obvious. And so I don't know where you're at this morning with all of this. Maybe this has been the best year ever. It's all tracked up. It's been puppies and pansies or whatever your metric is for goodness and blessing. Maybe this has been a difficult year. And the treatments are continuing, or uh, your loved one that you're walking with them through the valley of the shadow are continuing to walk through the valley of the shadow. I don't know. But see, there's something that we all, all, all of us, I don't care how old you are, all of us need to soak in again and again and again and again. And that's that God sees and God knows And the answer to does God even care is always yes. Regardless of your posture to God. Hear that. Regardless of your posture to God. And by posture, you know what I mean. If you're running toward him or running away from him. If you're being obedient or disobedient, if you are crushing it on all of the things that he's led you and leading you to do, God cares. And if you've given God the biggest middle finger every waking moment, it pains him, but he still cares. There is nothing anyone living can do to make God love them any less. Hear it. There is nothing anyone can do to make God love them any less. Now, in our culture of we reward good behavior and we either crush or ignore bad behavior, right? That's a little like we know it in our head, but in reality, it's a difficult thing. 
And so this morning, as we're talking about love, um, the given of love is, love is manifest through God's grace. In God's grace to humanity, to you, to me, doesn't start when we turn to him. He knew you before you were born. Scripture says Christ died for the sins of the world, and it wasn't just the sins leading up to that point. And so God is, well, let's see. So the question, does God even care, is always yes. So if you've got your Bible this morning, we're actually, oh, we will be in Isaiah. I take that back. I was thinking we weren't. But if you've got your Bible with me this morning, let's turn to the book of Matthew. So, shocker, um, if you want to read ahead, we're, we're going to be in Luke for Christmas Eve. That's one in a long time. So we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 1. We've already looked at the story of, uh, of the birth of Christ, uh, where the angel shows up to Joseph and, and speaks uh, next steps for him and comfort and also discomfort because what is happening is very um, not what you'd want to have happen. What you want to read in the Bible, but what you don't want to have happen in your life, and which is actually kind of a lot of the Bible, isn't it? Great to read. God, I'm glad you work this way. And I'm glad you do those things. And then you go, oh yeah, that's some dude, like actually living that out. And so, all right, well, okay, that's rabbit trails to a minimum, Jay. Here we go. Matthew chapter 1, probably a text you don't hear every Christmas. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram, who was tough. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, who was king when the Assyrians came to try to overthrow Jerusalem and God delivered. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah who was a good king mostly. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile in Babylon. After the exile in Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Jerubabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there are 14 generations in all from Abraham to David and 14 from David to the exile in Babylon and 14 from exile to the Messiah. Now there's a reason why this isn't the passage around many Christmas messages. I actually can't remember a single growing up as a kid sitting in church listening to those. 
there's a reason to. See, we're not going to get all dressed up for a Christmas Eve service and then have the reader come up and start there. Putting this text this week into my Microsoft Word to start writing, it was 22 names underlined in red. And that's with me, like, getting sick of Microsoft telling me, you know, Jehoiakim is misspelled. Learn it. Learn it. So, <laughs> if you ever see me at the coffee shop and I'm just like, oh, my computer, I'm teaching it Bible words. But still, 22 underlined. No, sorry. Relook at these. And, okay. So, There's a reason, though, why Matthew begins his gospel this way. So he's writing to a Jewish audience, and and to the Jews, it's not just... See, in our culture, we celebrate come-from-nowhere stories, right? The, The stories of the kids who, like, went off the rails in college and then came back and invented, I don't know, cars or whatever, uh, but their parents were billionaires, you're like... But it's the ones who are like, oh, I started this business in my garage. And there's actually a whole great, uh, the myth, the urban legend of the garage startup. And HP started in a garage. And Apple started in a garage. And Atari started in a garage. And Water City started in a garage. Not really, because my garage is messy. But we like those stories, Right? came from nowhere. Why? Because most of us relate to came from nowhere, right? And if they can do it, then I can do it. Or if not me, if I'm at a past in my life, then I want my kids to read biographies of people who came from nowhere as a, you can do this. This is the land of opportunity. But see, in ancient Jewish culture, even in here, it's not just you came from nowhere. In fact, if you came from nowhere, it's suspect. It's one of the charges against Jesus in the beginning. Can the Messiah come out of Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. One of Jesus' disciples says, which shows that they probably ribbed each other really well, and the Son of God has a good sense of humor. And so that he comes from nowhere, for us, that's awesome. For them, scandalous. And so what Matthew's doing in the book of Matthew, uh, original audience mostly intended to Jews, And so as we're reading the book of Matthew, we read again and again, Matthew draws something from the Hebrew scriptures, from our Old Testament. And he says, this is what the prophet said, that it might be fulfilled. And then he says this, and he's not just doing that to get a better word count, so he could be the longest of the Gospels and then get first. It's so that he can link for this Jewish mindset that it's not just show up out of nowhere, but it's in order to have a place in the conversation in a more important place, you need to be linked back to really important things or people. And so what Matthew's doing here is he's linking Jesus back all the way back to Abraham. And it's interesting. Matthew has a, a genealogy and Luke has a genealogy. Norman and I have talked about this and, and he pointed out some stuff that I didn't even realize. There's some prophetic where there's a word spoken and it says your priestly line will end and you're not going to be a priest. And it's like, whoa, but he's in there. But then one of the other genealogies finds a little, follows a little bit different track. And it's still the break in the line that was prophesied would happen but it still gets back to King David. It's a beautiful and amazing, and the stuff that just makes my head spin. See, there's something great in when we're reading this to stop and pause over. Now, I know you're like, Jay, it's three minutes after 11, and that's a lot of names, and you have trouble skipping history. I know, you've thought it. Who is the first one? Abraham, let's go. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. See, in Isaiah, we've been bouncing from the prophet Isaiah into the gospel narratives of the, the start, or the birth of Christ. And, and we saw this already, Isaiah chapter 11, but, but this is why this matters. Matthew links to get Jesus' genealogy, not like stretches it, but says, look, he is of the line of David, 
And, and importantly, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, the prophet Isaiah had said hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. From its roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And it goes on, and it's wonderful. Um, and in Isaiah 2, Isaiah also, chapter uh this is 11. In chapter 9, we that he will be wonderful counselor, prince of peace, almighty father. There is this link of who Messiah will be is linked into who he's coming from, where he is. It's, it's important. But see, Matthew's doing more than just giving uh, a, a good lineage to this random teacher from the backwater village of Nazareth. Nancy Guthrie, pastor in Tennessee, uh, wrote a book called Saints and Scoundrels. Um, Nancy, she writes this, she says, But honestly, if that was all that Matthew was trying to accomplish to connect the dot, he could have gone about recording Jesus' family history in a different way. If that's all Matthew was trying to communicate, there's no reason for him to include some of the names he chose to include in the genealogy specifically the names of five women. See, Jewish genealogies and most genealogies in the Bible don't include women. But more interestingly than the fact that Matthew included women in this particular, it's, it's the ones he chose to include and then ones he chose to leave out. See, we might expect Matthew writing for a Jewish audience to include Jewish matriarchs such as Sarah or Rebecca or Leah. But of the five ladies Matthew includes in Jesus' genealogy, four aren't even Jewish. Only Mary, who's descended from the kingly line of David, like her husband Joseph, was Jewish. And the other four women Matthew took care to include in the genealogy were Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. So the race that was in the promised land when the people of Israel came in, and Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites. Uh, and Ruth was a Moabite. And then there's Bathsheba, who was born an Israelite, but had married Uriah the Hittite, which made her legally a Hittite. So Matthew seems to be going out of his way to make clear to his Jewish readers that God had always intended for his blessings, his promises, his rule to be for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, not exclusively those who were Jews. And it seems as if Matthew wanted to make clear that being a part of the people of God, the family of God, has never been about blood, but always had been about belief. And it is about taking hold of the promises God made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, which is exactly what Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth did. So that Matthew included women who were foreigners in his genealogy is not the only thing that stands out when we read it. We can't escape the reality that the lives of the women that he chose to include were touched by scandal. Now, listen, I don't know if you're like me. I'm a little, this is going to sound weird because this is my job. I'm tired of being preached at. I'm tired of within 30 seconds of listening to a podcast knowing what, where they're going with this. It's one of three hot buttons. Or four or five or whatever. I don't know your world. I, I want to be surprised. I want to be led into a thing and, and go, oh my word, there are more interesting things to talk about than just these three which are really bad things in our world. But they're not the only things. You know what I mean? And so if you're anything like me, and I did this when I first started reading this article by uh, Nancy Guthrie, I'm like, oh, like the, the in had me in the intro, and then, oh, you're going to talk about the women in the thing. And uh, this is going to sound bad, but I'm just being real for a second. I don't want to get preached at anymore. I we're a part of a denomination that, that ordains women. Women are full-on in ministry the same way as dudes. There is no like, well, yeah, it's a footnote and it's a whatever. No, from go, the Assemblies of God, we've been weird. We've been weird. 
but we've been right in ordaining women. Do you want to have a conversation about that? Let's get coffee after Christmas. So this isn't like a, like, Rachel isn't like a pretend pastor on campus. Like, she's full-on pastor. In fact, she's tracking to get ordained faster than I am. So that'll make her a more real pastor than me. I need to get on that. Next year. Not going to happen. So anyway, so as soon as it kind of went into that space, I'm like, ah. Because... But then even in that, there was this bit of me that was like, but wait a minute, this isn't a, their stories, the point isn't that they were women. And if that's all you hear this morning in this, Jesus had five women in his genealogy, go team, you're missing it. You're missing it. It is scandalous that they're included. It's more scandalous that they're writers. And so one of them's for real a prostitute. Kids are out of the room. Rahab, she didn't run an inn. There are no inns. There's brothels. Tamar, her story is brutal. It's brutal the way she's treated. Married, her husband dies. Next in line, according to the law, that, that guy it's, doesn't want his uh, offspring through her, even though the, the law demands it. And so he, he makes sure that she's not going to have a child. I mean, it, it's brutal. And Ruth... Ruth's story is one that we can read. The tragedy in her life and the faithfulness of others around her because of her character, the way God provides for her, the mercy and grace shown by somebody who is uh, not desirable to everyone else around them. There's just this soaking picture of the gospel in the story of Ruth. And Bathsheba? And Matthew doesn't even say, Matthew, Matthew's like, oh yeah, don't forget the elephant in the room. Bathsheba, Uriah the Hittite's wife, who, see, the point of the narrative even though it doesn't feel like a narrative of the genealogy. The point of it, and if you're, you're a history nerd and you want to follow each link to back where they are, it's fascinating and it's wonderful to do. But listen, you're probably like me, and when you hit the genealogy, you just kind of zone past it because you know the story is about to start. But the, the reality is, is that God is writing the story in and through the genealogy, through these lives that are broken and messy and in need of rescue, just like yours, just like mine. And so in this, we see grace. We see a portrait of the creator of heavens and earth who is a God of grace. Grace. Now, grace is another one of those words like sovereignty that sometimes get tossed around. But listen, grace is theologically defined as the freely given, unmerited favor and love of God. If you have a picture of God that has in any way works or earning love, it's not God. It's not God. We don't come into saving faith through what we bring to the table. You bring the same thing I bring, which is nothing. Which is nothing. Wouldn't it be interesting if, like, some preschool over in uh, Paris just gave an assignment to their little pre-K? Like, hey, do some art. Something that's beautiful. Do it. And then they did it. And then they took that to the Louvre. The Louvre, the Louvre, the museum. 
and presented it. Like, here's our, here's our art. Do you have a wing or something you could put this on display in? How's that going to go over? Unless the, the director and the curator of the museum is a mom or a dad of one of those little kids, it's going to be, thank you very much, and then... See, sometimes we have this idea of the thing that we're bringing to God is this amazing thing. Here's the hard news of it. There isn't a thing that we can do that isn't tainted or affected or broken or muddied by sin. But the beauty in this is that God, because of grace, his love not earned, his love for all of humanity, his love always loved, his love is freely given, unmerited. That means you don't earn it. And this isn't cheap grace like, hey, play a sport and get a trophy. All of you, because you've paid the entrance fee. Remember the good old days? No trophy. Sorry, you didn't win. Which means I'll try harder next time. This isn't a God gives just a participation ribbon to everyone at the end of the age. You did mostly okay. Come into my presence. Well done. Actually, no. But the love that he pours out on all humanity, regardless of their posture towards him, it's unmerited. Unearned which is incredible. God's love isn't for sale. So what does this look like in real life? So one author says it's hard for us to get our heads around. Does divine love mean that we should expect invisible hugs in our day, right? Erickson writes, he says, I don't know what your questions are, but abstract religious talk about unconditional love can leave me a little confused about what kind of affections I can expect from an invisible deity. What I've come to understand is that grace is the antidote to the ailment of shame. Shame believes one lacks what it takes to be loved and must endeavor to earn that back. Hear that. Grace is the antidote to shame. Shame believes what you don't have you need to work at to earn back. It's the burden of perfection, morally, spiritually, humanly, and it inevitably destroys our souls because there's no fulfillment enough. It's just this endless jog on the janky treadmill of striving. (sighs) To see Jesus as full of grace means that there wasn't any perfection checklist that was met to deserve his presence. His arrival stands against the idea that if you do it right, you get access to the presence. His presence was freely given, never withheld. Grace is presence, not withheld. Grace is God's presence, not withheld. John 1.14, in this beautiful opening of the story that continues on to Nicodemus, John writes this. This is the, the, the crescendo. He says, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth full of grace and truth. This is Jesus from the start, which really isn't the start because Jesus has been the word with God, the word was God. From the very beginning, all things were created through him, all things sustained through him. The word has come among us, the visible glory of God, the one and only son sent from the father, always full of grace and truth. We could spend all morning going through each of the biographies in that genealogy. There's some great stories of faith in there, right? Abraham. But then I was talking uh, with 
Sophie and Lucy about, they were reading through Genesis and came to Abraham and were like, what is the deal with Abraham lying about his wife? Remember? Twice. Geriatric Sarah, he lies about. And that's weird for me to get my head around. Why does he need to lie? But that's not the point. Comes in. Hey, tell him you're not my sister, or tell him you're not my wife. Tell him you're my sister, and then they won't kill me as they try and steal you. You think you've got a rough week. This is Abraham, the father of faith. And he doesn't do it once, he does it twice. And just for kicks, then some of his descendants do it too. What? As we go through that, genealogy. We see each one of us. And in a way, it's a genealogy of all kinds of histories that are worthy of both celebration and regret. We are a culmination of holy moments and juicy moments too, and you know what I mean. It's this paradox of Interior genealogy that we carry into the season of Advent, wondering if Christ could come into our complicated myths as well, Scott Erickson writes. The beauty of the genealogy of Jesus that we see in Matthew, we see it in Luke as well, but it's not just names. They're there, but it's this line of real people that are just like us. God comes to us, Emmanuel, God with us. God with us is grace, it's love undeserved, it's God's presence not withheld. And we're invited to respond. See, here's the thing, God gives his presence, he moves toward you. But you need to respond to his movement, right? Gee, I know this. Gee, I know this. But see, what happens in our, is that we have this idea that, well, that I have to earn, or that it doesn't matter what I do because I don't have to earn. And see, Part of the mystery in the I can't get my head around it of God is that he moves toward us, but we still need to respond to him. So in your life, know that you are loved, know that you are seen, know that you are known, know that God moves toward you, and in that, then respond. Okay, God, I don't... I don't know where this leads. I don't know where this is going. Maybe you're in Home Depot right now. And you don't know. And you've just been up night after night after night with the question again and again, does God know? Does God care? Does anyone care? Here's how this story ends, and then we're going to shift to communion. So Scott Erickson says, When I was saying goodbye to Cameron, I asked him what he had come to the store to get. Nothing, he replied. He said he was driving by this Home Depot, and he said he felt the Spirit tell him to go inside and to wait. His wife was in the car on her phone, and he had been standing there for 15 minutes just waiting when I bumped into him. He said, Scott says, we walked out together, and I said, hi to his wife, before we each departed. As I drove home, I gave thanks that God saw the details of my life and had used a friend to encourage me. But it was curious that I hadn't been given a timeline of what to do next. I mused that if God wanted me to be somewhere else, I would be. Maybe I thought the real question is, what is the honest conversation I could have by being only in this circumstance? 
What is the only honest conversation that I could have by being only in this circumstance? He closes out that bit and he says, I don't know how sovereignty works, but I do know that God is very, very detailed with our lives. And when we awaken to that intentionality, it will fill us with wonder. May you find the Almighty waiting in the conversation you can have only by being in your current situation. Wouldn't it be great if we could just like in a video game hit super boost and be a lot further than we are right now? Next level, better job, less bills, better health, whatever. The reality is, is that place where we are right now, whether you've disobediently walked into that place or whether you are sitting in a place of mourning like Job or whether you are walking through the valley of the shadow and you are pretty sure it shouldn't go any further than a couple weeks back, but it's still going forward. But there you are. David writes, there isn't a place you can go that God is not. Where could I run that you are not, he says, not the highest mountain, not even to the place of the dead. And that, I don't know. Because my picture of what God wants to do with my life is punch in the GPS coordinates, heaven, and then follow the little Google vehicle until I get there. But the reality is, is that is such a limited picture of God. God was, we saw in the book of Jonah, very much engaged with him when he was running on that ship. Was it a good lesson to learn? No way. And so we do better to obediently follow. But even those who are running and pushing in, even in those times, in our lives, When we are honest with God, there are things that he will say to us that we can only get there. Now, that doesn't mean it's the best thing to get, does it? But it's what we need. So then how do we respond? So I don't know where you're at with all this this morning. If we had another 20 minutes, I'd say, now let's look at how we can be Cameron. Because there is follower of Christ, Holy Spirit in you, God wanting to use you as witness. Things that God invites us into that we can sometimes do. And every once in a while, that means going to Home Depot when you've got nothing else to do. You know the real hero of that story? It's his wife. (laughs) Right? Because that's like double weird. Okay, I guess I'm just going to sit here for who knows how long. But see, the more we see God at work in everything, the more we are willing, or at least should be willing, to go, okay, God, here we go. What do you got? And some of that's really weird. And some of it's really mundane. But in all of it, there are things where we find ourselves that are only for us and only in that place. The message to Joseph would have been very different had his plans been different. And so God speaks to him where he is at, what is needed. And then it's for him to respond or not. So may we be people who hear, who hear. And may we be people who respond. And may we be people shaped by never forgetting that God knows us and sees us and cares. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this space. Thank you for this list of names that's more than just a way to get from Abraham to Jesus. But God, you are at work in each and every one of these lives. And in my gut, I'm not comfortable with the way some of those lives went. But God, you are present and you are working.
And this is this grand revealing and reminder to us of your grace, your presence not withheld. And so, God, I pray that you would saturate us with that reality this morning and as we move from here. Let it change us, really change us, God. Lord, for those who are just wondering this morning, is any of this real or is it just for everyone else, for some Scott guy? The kinds of things that just get said in church world. Remind us that you are actively at work in, in our life as well. And then, Jesus, I pray that you would so fill us with your spirit that we would respond to your nudging and your leading. Help us to be Cameron. God, not because we're awesome and we want. God, but for your glory and for your honor. Jesus, we love you and we worship you.